This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. It's good to see you here in our modified seating area. I want to thank you all for coming out. It's raining, it's cold, but you're here, and that's warm and beautiful. I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshua Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit, especially this week, for despite having all these challenges, they set it up in the modified space. I want to thank them. I want to thank the amazing people over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's filled with amazing Torah knowledge. Over a quarter of a million classes. Don't believe me. Go check them all out yourself. Tell me which ones were your top 200,000. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, this week's Parsha is Parsha's Vayechi, the very final Parsha in the, the very final Parsha in, parsha, in, in the book of Genesis. All right, so we are at a Chazak, Chazak, Venis Chazak moment. This is the first time we finish a Parsha in this uh, go-round. Now, I want to point out... Um, I want to point out a few things. Let's first talk about... Let's go... I'm trying to think, do we go in order or out of order? Yes. I'm gonna, right, yes. I'm going to go out of order for a moment, okay? Now, imagine... Imagine if I called you a donkey. That would be deeply re- disrespectful. You would say, what makes you think I'm a Democrat? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Imagine if I were to call you a donkey. You would find that to be quite offensive. And if you were an Israeli, it'd be even more so. Like in Israel, they literally use donkey as a pejorative, like a pejorative term. Atchamorata. Like it just literally in Hebrew, like when you want to tell somebody that you really don't like them, you tell them they're a chamar. You tell them that you're they're a donkey. Interestingly enough, despite that, in this week's Torah portion. Yaakov calls one of his children a donkey. Right? What does that say about the missus? No, I'm kidding. Uh, Yaakov in this week's Torah portion calls one of his children a donkey. And not just any donkey. A bony donkey. A bony donkey, right? He's all skin and bones. And he's a porter, right? Meaning donkeys are very, very talented at carrying heavy loads. I was once in the Grand Canyon, right? Not at the Grand Canyon, in the Grand Canyon, because I already had, I was hiking down. Now, the top of the Grand Canyon to the bottom is about 6,000 feet, right? From the very, very way top all the way it goes down. There's many different, like, steps, many different layers to the Grand Canyon. It's quite a remarkable place to be. However, if you go from the very, very tippity-top to the very, very bottom by the water over there, it is about 6,000 feet of elevation change. Now, of course, when I go, I usually go with a group. We're going there. We're going to see it. Uh, It's most people's first time. We probably hike down maybe maybe 700 feet down. But it's also, you're not just going straight down like a staircase. You're going down these paths, and it's quite beautiful, and you come around the bend, and it's incredible. It's absolutely beautiful, but then you, whatever you go down, you must come up. That's kind of the way things work. There's not like a Masada where they have a cable car, you know, take the cable car up, you can walk down, take the cable car down, you can walk up. There's no cable car at the Grand Canyon, at least not in this part of the Grand Canyon. So whatever you walk down, you got to walk away right, right away back up. But there are groups that actually go, they hike all the way down to the bottom and they camp out at the bottom. So one day I'm, I'm walking 
down uh, around inside the Grand Canyon, taking my little hike, going down, and I see a group of teenagers, right? And they're going, and they're telling us that they're going down for two weeks <coughs> to the bottom, all the way to the bottom. They're going to be spending two weeks camped out at the bottom. And I'm looking at them, and they're basically, all they've got on their backs is like camelbacks. And, you know, they're, they're just hiking in, in shorts and t-shirts and camelbacks. And I'm like, you guys are not going to have a lot of food down there. You plan on catching your own fish and building your own tents. But I didn't ask any questions. They weren't really, it wasn't a conversation I was having with them. I just heard that they said they were going down for two weeks. About 20 minutes later, there is a string of donkeys, right? And when I say a string, because they're literally strung to each other, right? And they are all the bony donkey kind. And they are carrying all these people's Tumi luggage and their, you know, their suitcases and their carry-ons and all the other accoutrements that they would need to be spending two weeks at the bottom. I can assure you it ain't a cheap camp. When they take you down to the bottom of Grand Canyon and they take care of you there for two weeks, feeding you, making sure you've got activities, that is not a cheap camp. I don't know what it costs, but it's not a cheap camp for those parents. And those kids are not carrying their stuff down on their backpacks. They're carrying it down on a bunch of bony donkeys. That's what you have. Bony donkeys carrying it down all the way down to the bottom. And then, of course, they'll have to carry it back up. Thus is the job of the bony donkey. And this, my friends, is what Yaakov decides to call one of his children. In this week's Torah portion, Yaakov knows he's at the end of his life, and he wants to give blessings to all of his children, and he does so. And many of them, he actually compares them to various animals. You've got Yisachar, who's compared to a bony donkey. You've got Naphtali, who's compared to a deer. Not like as in deer Naphtali, but as in like, Naphtali is a swift deer. You've got Dun, who's compared to a viper, a snake. Oh, Slytherin. Uh, you've got Binyamin, who's compared to a wolf. You've got Yehuda, of course, who's compared to a lion. So let's look for a moment at Yisachar's blessing, because... I don't know, but if you had to compare me to any of those, obviously we all want to be compared to the lion. But if not, I would say maybe the deer. He's, maybe you want to compare me to, the, uh, to the, the wolf. He's got cunning. He goes in packs. He makes, you know, like there's, there's, there's definitely some beneficial things about the, about the wolf. But when you finally get down to it, you're like, the last one that everyone's scrambling for is the bony donkey category. All right? Let's not take bony donkeys for 200, right? Let's leave that untouched. But this is how it goes. Yisachar Chamor Gorim Rovates Bein HaMishbosayim Says Yaakov to his son, Yisachar is a strong-boned donkey who rests between the boundaries. What does that mean? These donkeys, they were, again, they were the 18-wheelers of the ancient world. And they were so good at carrying heavy loads that people would constantly bring them from job to job to job. They got very little sleep. You know, it's an amazing thing. There was a gentleman who, uh, who came up with a program that would create the routes for UPS drivers in such a way that they would have almost entirely right turns. Okay? Now think about this. 
almost all over America, except for a certain major cities, you're, you're allowed to turn on right, right? You're never allowed to turn on left, which means that if you're turning left, you're generally going to be spending more time waiting idle at the stoplight, whereas if you're turning right, you generally, as long as no one's coming, you just make the right-hand turn. Now, okay, what's the difference? Well, it depends. For one driver on one day, it may be a total of only 17 and a half minutes. But when you have a fleet of 100,000 trucks out on the road, okay, UPS trucks, FedEx trucks, whatever it is, you're saving millions of man hours a year and millions of gallons of gas, right? It becomes, it's a big deal. So when you, have, when you have a fleet of strong-boned donkeys, right, you don't want them laying idle at all because they're earning, right? They're trucks. If you have a truck sitting on a parking lot, what's it doing for you? Nothing. Therefore, you want your trucks on the road as much as possible. If you are a truck owner, you want to work your truck so hard that they're on the road almost all the time. You schedule in their maintenance exactly in between jobs. You want to keep it as efficient as possible, the donkeys were the same way. They were like, literally, they would go from one job and then pick up their next load and pick up their next load. So once in a while, in between this job and this job, in between the boundaries, they would find the little places just like, conk out. So that's Yisachar Hamar Garm. That is Yisachar, the strong-boned donkey. Who, where does he rest? In between the boundaries, when he gets a minute here, a minute there. And he saw tranquility, that it was good, and the land, that it was pleasant. And he bends his shoulders in to bear. And he became an indentured servant. First of all, why are you blessing your child to be a, like a donkey? Number one. Number two. It says something over here very strange. The only time in the entire blessing of the twelve brothers that the word tov can be found is here in Yisachar. The word tov means good. The only one who's described as having good is Yisachar. And furthermore, not only good, but tranquility. Vayar menucha kitov. And he saw tranquility that it was good. If you're a strong bone donkey, you don't get no tranquility. And you definitely don't get good. It's not like you're, you're schlepping crazy packages all the time. Hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth of snobby rich kids' luggage up and down the Grand Canyon all day long. And for what? For nothing. For a bag of rolled oats at night? What's the good? What's the tranquility? Okay. So let's first understand what is the role of Yisachar in the world. The role of Yisachar in the world was Yisachar Yodei Bina. Yisachar were the people who understood wisdom. Yisachar were the Torah scholars of the Jewish people. As Rashi says, Yisachar Chamor Garim, Yisachar is a bony donkey, Chamor Balatzamos. He's a donkey with all of its bones sticking out because it's working so hard. Sovel ol Torah. He carries the yoke of Torah study. Like a strong donkey upon whom they give a big, heavy cargo load. You got some donkeys, oh, you don't want to, he can't get more than 200 pounds, right? But that donkey, you could drop 450 on him, no problem. So Rashi says that 
Yisachar were the people who carried the yoke of Torah. Like a bony donkey upon whom you can give a heavy a heavy load. Now, let's understand what is good and what is tranquility. If you want to think of what tranquility is, you know, imagine the following. Imagine you have a teenager, right? He comes home, he's like, I don't want to do anything. You're like, can you help out? I don't want to do anything. What does he do? He goes to his bedroom. He puts on his earphones, right? And he just flops out on his bed. Which, ironically, that's what would have happened 20 years ago. Now, he puts on his earphones, he flops down on his bed, and then he goes like this for four hours. <laughs> right? It's pretty crazy. No, am I wrong? I mean, literally, it's, it's bizarre, right? It literally is bizarre. It used to be a teenager would just go and just sit down on his bed, and you could hear the music vibrating out of his earphones, Right? But now, he's just sitting there, just the same thing, he's just going like this the entire time, right? Scrolling, 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 scrolling. But imagine he's just sitting there listening to music. Now you look at him, he's just lying on his bed, listening to music. You're like, okay, that is the picture of relaxation. No, like, that looks like relax, no? He's not moving a muscle. He's got his music playing. Now granted, I wouldn't call his music perf- exactly relaxing, the music of the teenager, generally speaking. You know what I'm saying? But, I mean, maybe we could play him some, uh, a, a little bit of uh, Beethoven. We could throw in a little Schubert, you know what I'm saying? Just to calm down the, uh, keep it copacetic. But no, he prefers other music. You know, it's funny. I found in my own personal life that when I was an angry teenager, I listened to angry music. And then as I mellowed out, and I just became happier with myself, like, it just was too discordant. It didn't talk to me anymore. So I just started listening to more and more mellow music. Isn't that interesting? Like, it just, it, when I was like angry, like the angry music kind of spoke to me. And it just, after I kind of became more just chilled out, Baruch Hashem grew up, matured, became happier with myself, like the music just didn't talk to me anymore. It just didn't do it. But anyway, the teenager is lying in his bed. He's got his earphones on. Music is on. That guy's chilled out, right, guys? That guy's tranquil. Not at all. Scientific studies tell us that the more music a teenager listens to you, the more depressed they are. Of course, if you listen to some of the words they're listening to today, which I don't recommend you ever do, do not try this at home. Do not ever, ever read the lyrics on any music that your children are listening to today. <laughs> if your children are listening to anything other than Jewish music, because it's horrifying. It, it's, unbel- it's, it's unbelievable. I, I, I can go on a whole rant just on that alone, but I'm not going to. What, what people allow to pass for music today, they say, well, it's just music. No, it's not just music. Music shapes culture. Music has an incredibly strong effect on people. We believe that me- music in Judaism has the power of tchias amesim. has the power to bring people back to life. We know it has the power to heal people from their bad moods. When there was uh, people who were prophets who could not prophesize, they would bring before them musicians to play music, to bring back the tchias, to bring back the joy. But the heal of Ruach Hashem, and then the Spirit of Hashem can rest upon them. Music has an incredible power to change who you are and how you feel. Which might explain why today over 40% of teenagers are experiencing either clinical or sporadic depression and anxiety. But there's a lot more than just the music. It might also have to do with those four hours of scrolling that we just talked about before, which study after study after study shows is incredibly harmful to your mental health, and yet we do nothing about it. 
don't know if you remember, there was this thing called the pandemic. And during that thing, the entire world had to go into shutdown. Even though, especially as the few, by the time June of 2020 came along, three, four months, in the very beginning there were a lot of deaths, but once three, four months, once June, July came about, very, very few people were still dying from it, and many people were not at risk at all, especially healthy young people. We had to shut everybody down and close everything off because it was causing danger to a few people. We have social media on full blast 24-7, and there's almost not a single study. I, I don't know of any study that says it's beneficial, but every single study that studies it says this is terrible for your mental health and your well-being. And yet, we've got no problem. The government, you're so concerned about COVID, but you're not so concerned about social media causing mass depression and anxiety. Why not? I don't know. Follow the money. Anyway, how did we get here? We're talking about Yisachar. So you see the guy lying on his bed, listening to his music, and you think that guy must be totally, he's tranquil, he's chilled out. But he's actually not. And studies show that the more you sit and listen to music, now again, if you're working and you have music playing in the background, that's a totally different thing. But a teenager who just sit and listen to music actually have higher levels of depression. And teenagers who are busy working out and playing sports and doing hobbies and building stuff, they're much, much happier. Which means, ironically, that you don't get tranquility from inaction. You get tranquility from action. And ironically, the more challenging the action is, the more it demands of you, the greater serenity it brings. In our bungalow colony, my mother-in-law has a bungalow in a place called White House Estates. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful bungalow colony. Amazing people. There was a lawyer who unfortunately passed away at a very young age. His name was Louis Tratner. Louis Tratner was an incredibly, incredibly skilled lawyer. I don't know what he was charging for per billable hour. It's probably 800, 1,000. It was, he was, he was a, a, a named partner on his law firm, right? So like a named partner, is like his firm was, you know, Berger, Tratner, and Mikulski, whatever it was. You know what I'm saying? So he, he was up there, senior, senior partner. Yet, he loved gardening. So much so that if somebody in the bungalow colony wanted to do a project to make their bungalow more beautiful, they could schedule a consultation with Louis Tratner and he would sit with them and they would discuss, what do you want? You want azaleas? You want hydrangeas? You want, uh, you know, whatever, all these different kinds of flowers. He would talk to you about what you want it to look like. And then he would give you a list. And he would say, make sure you have this here by Thursday afternoon or whatever, or by Friday morning. He would come home from work that weekend. He would come up on Thursday night. So he wouldn't go to work at all on Friday at his law firm. And you would see Louis Tratner sitting out in the sun, the middle of the summer, in the hot, humid sun. <laughs> digging up dirt and putting in this flower and putting in the mulch. He would spend six, seven hours beautifying someone's house. Now those same six, seven hours, if he was working billable hours, right, he could have made five grand, $5,000. Instead, he decided to sit out in the boiling hot, humid sun, 
planting azaleas. Because he loved and enjoyed the hard work and the beautifying, and that's what he got pleasure out of. More was more valuable than the money. He found tranquility not in sitting around doing nothing, but in sitting around and beautifying, and not sitting around, but working hard and beautifying other people's bungalows. We think that the menucha and tov, the tranquility and the good, comes from inaction. But that's not where it comes from. It comes from good action. And sometimes the more strenuous the action, the better. One of the times that I find incredibly tranquil, again, it's, it's, I find incredible tranquility when I'm snowboarding. I'm zooming down a mountain, maybe 27 miles an hour, strapped to a piece of wood and polyfibers, 163 centimeters long, and I've got to, I'm zooming, and I've got to calculate every turn as I go down, because I know where I want to end up on the mountain. There's too many bumps over here, and there's rocks over here, and I've got to calculate. I'm going to cut right, cut left, heel, toe, heel, toe. And I'm sitting there, and I'm totally zoned in, and I'm speeding down the mountain. But I find such tranquility there. Tranquility doesn't come from inaction, from doing nothing, from sitting and spacing out, from watching Netflix. Tranquility comes from getting in the zone of proper action. And what's the most proper action of all? Torah study. What you are engaged in right now. The study of God's wisdom. That is the greatest engagement you can do. Yisachar is the Chamar Gorem. Yisachar is the Torah scholars. If you think it's inactive, if you think that Torah study is inactive, go downstairs and look at the kolo. Watch them sitting and learning all day long. Watch them come in at 9.30 in the morning and sit until 1 o'clock and then go home and maybe have lunch with their wives and then come back at 2.45 and do services and then sit and learn from 3 to 7 p.m. Watch their engagement. Watch, go walk into a base medrash, into a study hall in Lakewood, New Jersey with 900 of 1,100 people sitting and studying. It is not a library, ladies and gentlemen. It is not a library. It is filled with noise of the fire of Torah study. People are fighting for hours to achieve truth. God's truth in the world. Like a bony donkey carrying the burden. What's the burden? What burden? The burden of finding the truth. You don't understand this word in the Gemara. So you don't just say, okay, whatever. No, you fight over it, and you study, and you look it up, and you ask people, and you discuss, what could it mean? And why does the Gemara say it like this? And I don't understand, but the Gemara over there said that, and how is that any different? You're fighting to find every bit of truth, and you could sometimes spend three weeks on one page with lots of commentary because you want to find the truth. You're carrying the yoke of God's wisdom and truth in the world, and you take it very seriously. And you achieve tremendous tranquility through that. Speak to people who spend their days in Torah study. There's a koal right downstairs over here. 
and all the people who learn there. I know so many of them. These are people who have trained. These are they're happy people. You go outside. You talk to me. What's going on? Oh man, I don't know. It's just crazy out there. Talk to people sitting and learning, sitting and learning Torah. How's it going? Baruch Hashem, it's amazing. Chazde Hashem. They should be stressed out. I'll tell you a little secret. Kolel does not pay well. <laughs> and a lot of people who sit in Kolel have large families. They, they should be stressed out, you would think, because money is definitely one of the largest stressors. But I can tell you for sure, and not to say that they don't ever experience the stress of money. Right? They're not angels. They're still human beings. But I hear a lot more people out there stressed out about money than in the base madrash. These bony donkeys who are walking in every day, they barely get any sleep. They're studying, going to the Torah, going to the base madrash over here at Yeshiva Gdola at 1 o'clock in the morning. These are people who, they don't get much sleep. There's, it is strenuous to sit and study all day. You need, to, you need to hold your head. As they say in Yiddish, hold cup. But yet they're happier people than most. They see the land that it is good and the sorry, they see the tranquility that it is good and the land that it is pleasant. People who involve themselves in the study of Torah day and night, people who involve themselves in the study of God's word find it uplifting. People who whenever you encounter it. You hear a great speech from a rabbi, you're like, ah, oh, that was amazing. You come out uplifted. You weren't watching Netflix. You weren't listening to music. You weren't sitting and doing nothing. You were engaged. You were listening. You were trying to concentrate. But you come out, you, it feels good. Because what we learn here is that it is not the doing of nothing that gives you tranquility. It is doing the right thing that gives you tranquility. There was a man named Rabbi Eliezer Man Menachem Man Shas. Menachem Man or Man Menachem. We'll leave that for later. I'll probably find that out as soon as I get out of here. I'm like, oh man, it was. Anyway. Rabbi Eliezer Man Menachem Shas. Shach. Rav Shach. Boom. Okay. Rav Shach. Rav Shach. Rav Shach was the Rosh Yeshiva in the Yeshiva called Panovich in Israel. He lived to be 102 years old. He was born in 1899, died in 2001. He lived in three centuries. Isn't that wild? He lived in three centuries. He saw all kinds of change in his life. And people, think about it, he became the Rosh Yeshiva of this incredible Yeshiva. He had hundreds, thousands of followers, children, grandchildren, unbelievable, everything. They said to him, what was your happiest tekufa in life? Like what was, if you had to take an era, grab a, grab a time in your life, a chunk. That was your favorite time in your life. What was your favorite time in your life? He said, when I was learning in Yeshiva as a bachar. Let me describe to you how he learned in Yeshiva as a bachar. In those days, yeshivas, today, you got these luxury yeshivas, right? Baruch Hashem, because that's what Kalei needs today, you know? I spent uh, many years learning in a yeshiva called Shayashiv. Now, the first number of years, the first uh, six years I was there, we were not a luxury yeshiva. We were deep in the ghetto. We're talking about 
in the far Rockaway ghetto where it was dangerous. There was a crack house right across the street from one dorm. And then a bodega that also sold crack across the street from the other dorm. Well, I don't know about crack, but definitely cocaine. Which, by the way, was constantly getting shut down by the police, even though it was just a bodega, right? They were just selling, like, uh, soda and chips. Had a pool table in the back room. There was a basement. You weren't allowed to go down. I don't know what was going down there, but the police kept shutting the place down. And then finally, one time, they shut it down permanently, and there was big signs closed... Forbidden to come in, evidence inside, and then suddenly, mysteriously, one night, there was just a massive fire, so much so that it caused them to bring fire trucks, literally, from Brooklyn, from all over. There was, I'm not joking when I say there was at least 30, 40 fire trucks there, because this fire had broken out, and it was so big, and we lived in Farakway, which is relatively close to the oil refinery plots near uh, JFK over there. So they had to bring out like 30 fire trucks Evidently, there was some kind of evidence that it wasn't just a bodega. I guess it wasn't just a bodega selling chips and soda and uh, lottery tickets and cigarettes. In any case, so that was right across the street from my dorm. The other dorm literally had a crack house across the street from it. One morning, <laughs> there was a school there, and they had to, uh, they had to like, quickly remove a body. There was a body in front of my dorms and the school there. So they had to quickly get it out before the kids showed up in the morning. It was, not, it was a rough-and-tumble neighborhood. The heat, did it work? Occasionally. <laughs> Who expects heat all winter long, right? Okay, so that was the yeshiva that I was learning in. But then they moved into a Luxo yeshiva, a beautiful one-seater lawn. Gorgeous, gorgeous campus, gorgeous, beautiful base medrash, beautiful dorms, which is great. I'm glad they have it. Today's boys need some luxuries. Just, you know, because like... That's, that's the way we were brought up today. We need a little bit, a little bit extra. However, in the days of Rabbi Shach, they, they definitely didn't have no luxuries. They didn't even have food. The yeshiva couldn't afford to feed a bunch of students. So what did they do? They had something called esentag. Esentag means you'd go out to different, different people's houses on different days. So you'd have a board and a thing. It would say, okay, it has like a grid. You know, burger. Monday, you're going to Goldstein. Tuesday, you're going to Goldberg. Wednesday, Golden Goldschmidt, and so on and so forth, right? And then you have each bacher would go to different people's houses on different days. Now Rav Shach didn't want to go to any of those houses because he was very concerned. There's a halacha that says you are not allowed to eat from a meal that the host doesn't really have enough. It's called a suda she'ina maspekas l'ba'aleha. You're not allowed to eat at a meal where the owner does not have enough food to eat. So he didn't want to go out and eat there because he felt like there's not enough food there. So he wouldn't go. The whole week he would stay in yeshiva. So what would he live off of? Some of the women in town, they, they knew there was a bacher that didn't go out, so they would drop off their, like, three-day-old bread. You know, you, you work around the mold, and if you eat a little bit of mold, it's, you know, it's good. It adds to the biodiversity of your gut biome. You know what I'm saying? So Rav Shach, and then where did he sleep? Rav Shach didn't go sleep at people's houses like most people did because he didn't feel comfortable with that. Instead, he slept in the back of the yeshiva. But the yeshiva didn't have heat in the middle of the nighttime because they weren't heating the whole building all 24-7. It was very expensive to do that. At nighttime, in the freezing, frigid winter in Lithuania, Rav Shach was just out there, exposed to the elements. I mean, he was in a building wrapped up on the back bench of, a, of, a, of, a, of the, the women's section over there. But of course, that helped him stay up a little bit more and learn Torah a little bit more because he couldn't sleep much. It was too cold. At the Shabbos, he would go out for meals. He had one set of clothing. 
He was like, what does he think? He's like a king or queen? He has like five sets of clothing? That would be absurd. Whoever thought of five sets of clothing? So he had one set of clothing. He would change it. He would wash the clothing on the roof of the yeshiva on Friday. That would be like his preparing for Shabbos. That was a Shabbos change of clothing. But what does he say? That was my favorite years of my life. Ironically, what we find is that the more you put effort into doing good things, the more you feel tranquil, tranquil, the more you feel good. It is not the lack of work that makes you feel good and tranquil. It is working on the good things. What did Rav Shach do that entire time? He sat and he studied and he argued and he debated and he started writing his books already. And who did he become? The greatest leader of the generation. So... Yisachar, who is the brother that is blessed to become the Torah scholars, he's the one who's blessed to be the bony donkey. Vayet Shechmol is bold. He bends his shoulder to carry the burden. He's the guy who says, give me another job. What more can I carry? You're only going to... You're only going to... Yesterday, a guy called me up for a donation, right? It's the end of the year. Of course, now is the time to get people in. It's the end of the year. You've got to give your tax donations, whatever. This guy calls me up. So he's raising money for an organization, a very good organization. I believe in strongly. So he's joking around with me. He says, right, you know, he says, Levy, I think for you, like, 20000 would be like a, a nice, just to keep you in line with what you, you usually give, you know? I said to him, 20000 I said, come on, man. Why are you keeping me in the children's pool? You know what I'm saying? Like, what are you, what, I, can't, I can't sit at the grown-ups table? You're going to ask me for twenty grand? What are you, joking around over here? Add a zero. <laughs> Yisachar is the one. He says, Vayet Shechma. I'm already carrying so much. But you know what he says? Yeah, throw another couple pieces of luggage on my back. But you only got me carrying 450? Come on, man. I can do better than that. Notice that great people are the ones who are always... You, when you have a challenge, you go to great people because they, they have capacity for more. They bend their shoulder to do more. You ask the non-great people, they don't have capacity for anything. The great people, no matter how much they're already doing, for sure, what can I help with? What can I do? How can I get involved? Unbelievable. Okay, it's idea number one. Idea number two. At the end of his life, Yosef, Yaakov asks Yosef, who's the viceroy of Egypt, to bury him in Israel. He says, I don't want to be buried here in Egypt. There's many reasons. He's afraid the Egyptians are going to make him into a god because when he came down to Egypt, the famine stopped. So he, he asks Yosef to please bury me in Eretz Yisrael. And I know that you're the only one who has the ability to do it because you're the viceroy over here. And Yosef does it. Yosef buries him in Israel. And he brings him up with great fanfare and great honor. And he buries him in Israel. Let me make a blessing to thank the good Lord for all that he hath wrought into this world. Amen. Amen. So Yosef arranges this funeral procession for his father, beautiful, and they bury him in Israel, which was according to his wishes. The Gemara says 
In Tractate Sota, page 9b, with whatever measure you measure out, they will measure for you. Yosef was the one who was the most respected of the brothers of the time. He's the second in command to the largest country in the whole world. And he brings great honor to his father by burying his father. And what happens to Yosef in the end? There's no one greater in the Jewish people than Moses, and Moses takes the bones of Joseph with him to bury them in Israel. Yosef, who was the viceroy of Egypt, the most honored of the brothers, goes out of his way to bury his father, and what happens? Moses, who's the greatest of the Jewish people, goes out of his way to bury Joseph. And who's greater than God himself, who buries Moshe? And that's how it finally stopped, because otherwise no one ever buries God, so that, that chain stopped right there. But what we see here is the way the world works. The world is an investment bank. What you put in is what you get out. The Gemara says something fascinating. The Gemara is talking about if a when a husband is allowed to when a husband is allowed to um, annul vows that were made by his wife and it says that a husband is allowed to sorry if a husband makes a vow it's a complicated form of vow but he basically makes a vow that he's trying to prevent his wife from going to shiva houses or going to weddings. Ugh, you're always going to weddings. You don't got to go to every shiva in town. You barely know the people. So a husband makes a complicated vow, but he makes a vow to try to prevent his wife from going to shiva houses or weddings. He has to, he, he's required legally to divorce her if she, if she sues for divorce. I Meaning that's grounds for divorce. She could say, okay, you know what? You've prevented me from going to weddings and to shiva houses. I want you to divorce me. And we force the husband to divorce her because he's cutting her off from human society. But even more important, says the Gemara in Tractate Kasubis, page 72a, the suffered yasfidune. Those who give eulogies will be eulogized. The cover yakrivune. Those who go to bury people will be buried. Are you going to the, to the cemetery? Nah, I'm just... I'll just go to the funeral home. Uh, it's, it's a little cold outside. Okay, no problem. But there are those people who go and go with consistency. And even if they don't know the people so well, they go because every person should have dignity, as the Gemara says, until the very last shovelful. So those who go to the cemetery or those who go to the funerals, it's not convenient. People die at the most inconvenient times. It's unbelievable. So thoughtless of them. <laughs> they, they, they have funerals on, on July 4th. <laughs> Who would think? I, I got to set up my barbecue. Such insensitivity. So those who go to the cemetery, people will go to their cemetery. 
Those who cry and express pain for other people's losses, people will cry for them. Those who accompany the the, the um, casket on its way, I don't know if you, you know, when you go out of a funeral, there's like, usually what happens is people will mass outside and they kind of walk the casket down the driveway of the funeral home. That's called Levias Hames. It's called accompanying the dead. It's a way of showing honor. Those who accompany the dead, people will accompany their dead. The You carry the, the casket, they'll carry your casket. Now, of course, this applies to everything. If you're the kind of person who notices that one of your friends is sick and makes an extra chicken soup and sends over a couple quarts of chicken soup, they didn't ask for it, but you noticed, you cared. People will care about you. If you're the kind of person who someone gives birth on a Friday and you call the family and say, I know you guys are probably have a whole, uh, you know, it's a last minute thing, you have a Shalom Zachar to set up, you have a whole party for tonight, what can I do? Not do you need any help. What can I do? Can I come and set the tables? Can I cut the tablecloths? Can I set out the chairs? Can I go to Grove and buy sodas and chips and cake? Can I take the kids out to the park and for pizza? Do you do that for people? People will care about you too. It's, it's, it's an amazing... I'm actually right now, it's, it's so interesting. You know, you start seeing it. You know, I've, you have kids who... You have friends of yours whose kids are making bar mitzvahs. They'll be happy to see you. If you don't come, they're probably not going to notice. But they'll be happy to see you. Do you want to make the trek? Do you want to make the walk? Or are you just like, no, nah, just, I'll just stay in show. It's more comfortable. Do you want to be involved in other people's simchas? Even when it's not so easy or so convenient? Do you want to be involved in people's pain, even though it's not so easy and it's not so convenient? Recently there was someone sitting shiva. Now, I, I really believe that the information didn't get out well. But there was a message that went around from the wife, basically saying, nobody's here. What kind of community are we? So, do we want to be those kind of people who are the people who say, you know what, I'll make sure I'll go sometime in the early morning hours, like not early, like at 7 o'clock in the morning showing up for a shiva call, but if someone's sitting the whole day, it's pretty empty usually around 11, it's pretty empty around 3, I don't need to come at 7 p.m., that's when everyone's there. How thoughtful are you? How much do you go out of your way? Yosef goes out of his way to bury his father with honor and he gets the greatest honor bestowed upon him. The world truly gives back what you put into it. Now, of course, that's not why you put into it. You don't say, I'm going to go to this wedding even though it's in New York. I'm going to go to this so that people should come to mine. You do it because it's the right thing. But just know that the world comes back to return favors. Next. Now this is a, an amazing idea. At the end of the Parsha, Yaakov dies. 
Oh, in the middle of Parsha, Yaakov dies. But the brothers come to Yosef. They're afraid. They're very afraid of Yosef. Yosef is the viceroy of Egypt. They sold him into slavery. And now, their father, as long as their father was alive, Yosef would never do anything to the siblings while their father was alive. He wouldn't want to hurt his father like that. But now the father is dead. We know even Esav, even Esav said, I'll, I'll wait till my father dies, then I'll kill Yaakov. So the brothers are worried. Maybe Yosef is going to do something terrible to us. Maybe he was just biding his time until Yaakov died, and now that our father is dead, he's going to finally take revenge on us for the terrible, terrible thing that we did to him. So they come to him, and they actually they concoct a story that is not entirely true. It's not true at all. They tell him that before Yaakov died... He says, uh, they come to him and they say, before, they, before, they say, your father commanded us before he died, saying, so shall you say to Joseph, please kindly forgive the spiteful deed of your brothers and their sin, for they have done you evil, but now please forgive their spiteful de- de- uh, deed of the servants of your father's God. Yosef is very hurt, as you can imagine. Right? Now, there is a halacha, by the way, that certain times, under certain circumstances, you're allowed to lie to try to create peace. Right? It's, we've talked about this in different weeks' parasha. We talked about it by Avram and Sarah. But now is not the time. But they make this story up. They say, your father commanded us to, your father, that you should forgive us. And Yosef is crying. Yosef is crying because how could it be that his father would think he wouldn't that he would do bad to his brothers, that he would do spiteful acts to them. So he says to them, but you, he says, don't worry, you think I'm God? You think I'm here to punish people? You thought to do bad to me, God made it good, because now I have the ability to, to sustain all of you, and all your families during this famine, which ended up not being a famine. And now do not be afraid, I will sustain all of you and your children, and he consoled them and he spoke to their hearts. Now what does that mean he spoke to their hearts? We have a rule in Judaism that says like this, Things that come out of the heart go into the heart. Which means that when it comes to words, ironically, it's not the words that are used but rather the heart behind them that determine their efficacy. I'll give you an example. There was a man named Rabbi Meir Schuster. Rabbi Meir Schuster spent decades at the Western Wall, where he would see a Jew wandering in from anywhere in the world, and he would tap him on the shoulder, and he would say, Hey, can I help you? Are you you looking for something? And he would kind of try to get them to go to classes and encourage them to explore their Judaism more seriously. I'll tell you what Mayor Schuster was not. He was not cool. I'll tell you what else he was not. He was not charismatic. He really wasn't. He wasn't cool. He wasn't charismatic. He shuffled. He, he was, he was, his clothing was hopelessly out of style and out of like, he was one of the most unlikely characters in the world But he convinced thousands of people to explore their Judaism more seriously and to change their lives. 
How? Because he so deeply believed and wanted everything he was talking about. And that's why it went into their hearts. It wasn't the flowery, flowery, flowery root words that he used. It was the passionate heart that he had for them. Yosef, it says he was able to comfort them and he spoke to their heart. Why? Because this is truly who Yosef was. His entire life, and Hashem was with Yosef. What does that mean? The sages tell us, Shem Shemayim Shagar Alpiv. The name of Hashem was always on his mouth. Throughout his whole life, during all of his difficult times. How are you doing? Thank the good Lord, I'm doing fine. When Paro needs interpretation, what's the first thing he says? I don't know anything, but I'm, God will give you the answer. Always, his whole life, he gave credit to God for everything. So finally now, when he's telling his brothers, look, I don't blame you for what happened. God set it up. It goes right into their hearts because it was who he was. If you want to inspire people, you can't tell them what to do. You've got to live it. How many parents are there who are sitting there telling their children, I just want you to marry a nice Jewish boy, or I just want you to marry a nice Jewish girl. And their kids are looking, they're like, you don't care. You want me to marry a Jew, but you don't care about Judaism. I don't see you doing anything. You don't light Shabbos candles. We don't even have a Passover Seder every year. But yet you want me to cut out 98% of the women in the world? For something you don't care about? It doesn't work. I'll tell you an amazing thing. We have so many guys now and partners who've been parts of our, our dad's program. We have, we have a whole division for dads. And I cannot tell you how many fathers have told me that it's created a sea change in their house. Not because of what they say, but because their children see that every Thursday night, daddy is going to the Torah club. And every Sunday morning, he's going to service. And Tuesday night, he's going to partners. They see that their parents take it seriously, and it changes their whole tenor. One of the guys told me, he said, I have three children. He said, according to the stats, it was more likely that I would not have a single Jewish son or daughter-in-law than that I would have one. Just based on the numbers. Because the numbers of intermarriage right now in the non-religious world is over 70%. So he said, you look at each child, 70%, they're going to marry. I, I was more likely not to have a single Jewish son or daughter-in-law. I said, i got to get involved. The amazing thing is, he's totally involved right now. He's engaged. He comes to Tuesday night learning. He comes Thursdays. He comes Sundays. He comes. His whole house has changed. And now he says, I'm pretty confident. He doesn't have any daughters or sons-in-law yet, but he's pretty confident he'll have three out of three. You know why? It's not just me saying, you should marry a Jew. It's me living Jewishly. It's me showing that I value Judaism. It's me showing that I care. It's me showing that it brings life to me. It's me showing that it's a value for me. And when it's a value for me, it becomes a value for them.
But if it's just something that I parrot, it means nothing. Yosef was able to tell his brothers, you probably think I'm so angry at you and I want to hurt you and harm you. I don't. You intended for bad, but God had this whole thing in motion all the way from the beginning, said I should be the leader of Egypt right now and support this whole family. And the reason why the brothers are able to be comforted is because that's how Yosef lived his whole life. His whole life he lived with God's name on his mouth. His whole life, everything that happened, he said, whatever you want, God, it's your, it's your, it's you're in charge. It's all in his hands. When you live like that, and you, then you talk like that, it actually goes right into people's hearts. They know that you're saying the truth. May Hashem give us, number one, may Hashem give us the wisdom to seek out tranquility by working hard at being more engaged in our Torah, more engaged in our Torah study, more engaged in our acts of kindness, more engaged in our prayer, because the tranquility comes from action, not from inaction. May Hashem give us the ability to constantly show care and concern for others, which will then automatically create in the world that there will be more care and concern for us, and we just up the level, raising tides, raising, rising tides raise all ships. And may Hashem give us the ability to be truly enlivened by what we believe in, and then it will have an effect. It will go straight into the hearts of our children and our children's children, and our children's children's children, until, from now until Mashiach coming, which should happen soon in our days. Thank you for coming, thank you for listening, and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.